Chris is going to come around and collect your cups as we get set up for the message. Uh, Laura's going to bring around some little clipboards for those that are in our high school group uh, that just have some things to help you guys connect in with what's happening up the front because uh, we are continuing our series uh, on John. We've just started in the book of John, uh, looking at, I guess, John's purpose in writing uh, and some of the big picture stuff that John's going to be talking about. We were introduced to that last week as we looked at John 1, 1 to 18. Um, and I'm going to continue on with John chapter 2, verses 1 to through 12. Let me read to us John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had, been, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brother and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. It's interesting in the book of John, every time uh, John, Jesus does a miracle, it doesn't actually call it a miracle. It calls it a sign. They're always referred to as signs. Uh, they're signposts pointing to something else. And to get us thinking about signs as we start looking at Jesus' first sign recorded in the book of John, uh, I've got some signs from around the world uh, that some of them are, are quite interesting. Yep, so this one's, this one's good. State prison next exit. Do not pick up hitchhikers. Sage advice. I like the next one. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm sure that must be in like Canada or Alaska or the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Bikes must yield to pedestrians, and bikes and pedestrians must yield to bears. <laughs> Seems to go with that saying, if you ask me. Thanks, Phil. Um, touching wire caused instant death. $200 fine. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Uh, this one, I'm not sure where this one is. What concerns me, actually, is that they're going 45 miles per hour as they try and take that on. Uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Oh, you go back, you've missed one. If you hit this sign, you will hit that bridge. Uh, we had a problem where I used to live in New South Wales. There was a bridge that was quite low, and once every couple of years, a truck 
would get stuck for about six hours uh, and would block off the main road. They needed one of those signs. Uh, gaps in deck. I've just started riding my bike. Uh, I've ridden it twice to church and back uh, during the week. Uh, my legs are very sore. Um, and I would not like to, to be able to come across it. It kind of looks like the bridge. I'm not sure if you've done the drive from New South Wales, you come to the Victorian border. Looks like that bridge, do you think? Yeah, that one too. Anyway, uh, don't ride your bike there. This one, I'm pretty sure, is from Alaska. Uh, a car has clearly crashed into a moose. I like the fact that the moose is absolutely fine. <laughs> it's like unperturbed. The car's a wreck. Uh, thanks, Phil. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. Also, the bridge is out ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's where you don't put the important things first. Uh, but signs... They point us to something else. The sign itself is about something that's either coming up if you're on the road or something that's around that you need to be aware of. The sign itself doesn't so much matter. It's actually what it reveals, what it's pointing towards. And here, in the book of John, we have signs, miracles that are about pointing us to something else. The miracles themselves are great, but they reveal something deeper. They're wanting to point us towards a truth about Jesus, about who this man is, that we need to pay attention to, not necessarily what's happening or what the miracle is, but what it's trying to help us to see. We've got to remember that the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of John, is for us to be able to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might have life. That's why John's written his gospel. That's why he records the signs. That's what these signs are pointing towards, Jesus' glory. They're pointing us towards that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might have life. So this first miracle happens at a wedding. It seems almost a bit of a, almost a casual affair. Upon reading, it can appear like this is some sort of situational response. It's not very thought through or thought out by Jesus. I remember uh, when I was a young adult uh, in the church that I was a young adult at, um, some of the other kind of youthy young adults, they came up with a bit of a rating system for how good things may be in life. And they kind of used Jesus' miracles as the rating system. And so if something was okay, like it was, it was good, uh, it'd kind of be like a water into wine. But if something was truly amazing and spectacular, it might be like a, a raising Lazarus kind of miracle. Uh, and so there was this kind of this rating system. Uh, it didn't take long for some of the leaders to be like, oh, no, 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 we can't. We can't have a rating system based upon how miraculous something is. Uh, and so they kind of discourage the system from being used. But I think sometimes we have this idea that this miracle, this water into wine, is almost one of Jesus' lesser miracles. Not really as significant, not really that big of a deal. Uh, my hope is as we look at this sign, as we understand what it's pointing us towards, my hope is that we see an intentional, significant, symbolic moment 
in the life and ministry of Jesus, but not just for Jesus, for his followers. And not just the ones that were with him at the wedding, for us now, as we read this as well. But before we do this, I think we need to understand how weddings today in Australia are a little bit different to uh, weddings in Israel in the first century. Uh, I remember my wedding day uh, 16 years ago. Uh, is that right? So I even resisted saying 16 long years. Well, I just said it then, you're right. Um, so 16 years ago at our wedding, uh, great day. Uh, beautiful sun shining, people got sunburns were outside. Um, but we got married, and so that was the best thing that happened that day. Uh, and then we went and had this big party afterwards, uh, an amazing reception. Uh, and the second best thing that happened that day was the main course was pork wrapped in bacon. The best. Uh, plethora of pig, it got known as. Uh, and we'd actually got a, a wedding venue where they served uh, frozen strawberry daiquiris. Uh, and I, it was pretty impressive. My grandma had about three and then caused havoc for my mum for like the rest of the reception. Uh, fun times, that wedding's great. Uh, but it was all over in one day, right? From we started at like 2 p.m. was the ceremony and then the reception all wound up by like 9.30, 10 p.m. It was all over pretty quick. Uh, in Israel, weddings could last for up to about a week. A week of festivities, a week of feasting, a week of drinking and celebrating. This was a joyous occasion that couldn't just be confined to one day. This was going to spill over into multiple days as how exciting this moment was. And it was the responsibility, again, a, a difference, kind of the traditional view, not that it's what we did or what a lot of people do, but the traditional view is that maybe the bride's family pays for the wedding. Now, that doesn't always work out. It's a bit more of an old, outdated, traditional view. But in Israel, <laughs> it was actually reversed. And it was still something that people adhered to. And it was that the groom's family was responsible for ensuring that there was enough food and drink available to last for a week's worth of festivities. Big expense. Uh, but a failure to provide would have actually caused disgrace for the family and for the couple who were getting married. It actually could have even exposed the groom's family to a lawsuit from the bride's family. It almost is a kind of akin to saying, we didn't expect this event to be that joyous. We're not that excited about what's happening here, so we haven't really catered enough for people to be able to celebrate this. Food and wine were seen as an essential part of the celebration. And to run out would have caused great distress for the couple and for the groom's family. From some of the details in the story in those very first verses, it kind of get the feeling that Jesus is here and this is some sort of family connection wedding. His mother's there, it's mentioned. His father's not. Joseph's not mentioned. And tradition holds that this by this time, Joseph may have actually passed away. Uh, we know that during his life, before Jesus starts his ministry, Joseph uh, has passed away. Uh, and so there's that suggestion that Mary is there and Jesus and his disciples are there because being a close family member 
you would have been invited along to be able to bring those that are close with you. Either way, it's clear that Jesus and his disciples are very welcome at this event. Mary seems to have a role, uh, a role perhaps with the catering. Uh, when the wine runs out, when we read about that, uh, it's actually Mary who comes up to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. Um, and it's clear as she says this, this isn't a, hey buddy, have you heard? They've run out of wine. No, no. Mary cares. Mary's invested. Mary wants something to be done about this. There's this idea of, they've run out of wine. What, what can you do? Uh, it's, like I said, it's suggested that, as I've mentioned, only Mary. Joseph's probably no longer around, which then would make sense also as why Mary goes to Jesus. In a culture where, where women were cared for and provided for by their husbands, and particularly their sons. If her husband has passed, who is the most natural person for somebody like Mary to go to? Well, it would be her firstborn son, Jesus. Add to the reality of that I assume that Jesus would have been a fairly reliable uh, firstborn son that would have actually cared for his parents uh, and actually wanted to help. Uh, and so culturally, it makes sense that Mary would go to Jesus for these family sort of problems. Uh, when you start putting their piece of these puzzles together, the story starts to fill out a bit more. You start to see how things make a bit more sense. It's interesting though, Jesus hasn't performed any miracles up to this point. And some people that I've been reading some commentary suggest that, that Mary's leaving this with Jesus to do one of his miracles. But this is the first one recorded. And so it seems unlikely that Mary has any concept that Jesus is going to do something truly incredible. She's just thinking maybe he might be able to pull some of his connections. He's got some disciples here. Maybe they might be able to do something about this situation. It's interesting, Jesus' response to Mary. It records it in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? This could actually be seen as a bit of a cool response. Certainly as we read it in the English, it sounds very much that way. Woman, why do you involve me? I don't think it's supposed to be read that coolly. It's kind of like ma'am or lady, uh, why do you involve me? Um, perhaps a bit of a cool response for a son to say to his mother. But generally, this is not actually supposed to be rude on Jesus' behalf. Uh, Jesus is just stepping into his public ministry. So he's just at the beginning of going around and starting to do things. In the chapter before, uh, he's had some interactions with John the Baptist. Uh, and so things are starting to start up for Jesus. Uh, the guiding force of Jesus' life is shifting. From this point on, the purpose of his life what the direction that he's going to be following is, is to do the will of his heavenly Father, above all else. He's beginning and stepping into his public ministry, which is all about following what God is calling him to do, even sometimes at the expense of family ties that he may have grown up with. Mary, like every other person, must come to Jesus, not as 
her son, not on some inside track to get some of his salvation and forgiveness, but as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, her sin, as everyone else's. Despite being family, she doesn't get an inside track. She doesn't get Jesus' ear so that what she wants happens more than anyone else. What's interesting is that after this interaction with Jesus, she says to the servants, do whatever he says. She kind of just leaves it in Jesus' hands. They have this little interaction, and then Mary trusts that Jesus is going to do something about it. She doesn't seem to, to micromanage Jesus. I mean, like, well, what are you going to do? Maybe you could send some of your disciples, and maybe they could go and ask some people they know. She, she just leaves it with him. Something about that challenged me. And I wonder, in our prayers, how much are we like Mary, where we bring something that we care deeply about to Jesus, and we leave it with him, and we trust him, and we trust his timing and his purposes. I'd like to say that's what I do, but sometimes I think I try and micromanage Jesus. I, I take something that I'm concerned about, and then I'm like, oh, but maybe, maybe I could help you out, Jesus. Maybe I could do some things over here. This is surely what you're going to want to do here. So maybe I'll go and do... And I, I have no regard for... if that's, This is actually what Jesus has. This is, actually, this is actually what Jesus wants. It's more about what I can see. But what Jesus is about to do in this passage, no one saw coming. His mum didn't see coming. His disciples haven't seen it coming. The servants don't see it coming. No one sees this coming. And, Jesus, and Mary trusts Jesus... And perhaps that trust allows. There's no micromanagement here. It's just an acknowledgement that Jesus has the ability to sort this. Jesus instructs the servants to fill six stone jars with water. Uh, what was it? 20 or 30 gallons in each. I looked that up in liters because that's how I think. Uh, it's like 85 to 110 liters. Huge. Huge jars, each of them, six of them, in total, somewhere in between 500 and 650 litres of water that they're filling up. So they're filling up these jars, these ceremonial cleansing jars. In the story, uh, these jars are actually helping to connect us with the old Jewish laws and customs. Here's a family, right? A family that clearly is struggling financially to an extent because they can't provide enough wine to last for the length of a wedding. But they have six extraordinarily... So I think we've got a picture of it, Phil. Uh, you want to skip a few slides? Uh, extraordinarily expensive. Next one. There it is to stay. Now go back. Exter extraordinarily expensive jars. They have six of these. It shows that this family takes the ceremonial cleansing seriously. All right? They've made sure that they've got this covered. They're struggling to, to provide enough wine, but they're, they're taking the, the Jewish laws and the customs very, very seriously. And we're supposed to see that. This is an Old Testament family, a Jewish family, and this is a big deal for them. Jesus instructors, instructs the servants to fill these jars to the brim. And this is, I think, where the symbolism starts kicking in in what Jesus is doing. He's not just filling these jars 
so that there's lots of wine to go around. We're going to hear more about that in a bit. I think what he's actually doing here is he's filling these jars to say this old system that you've depended upon for cleansing, when you've depended upon for being close to God, is being filled full in your midst. Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill the old system and I'm here to bring a new one. I'm here to bring a new age, a new covenant that's going to be different to the old one. The old one is filled to the brim. It's completed. It's full. And then the new one is marked by this wine, which is so superior to the old wine. I wonder when you hear what it says, where does it say? It says, in uh, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Thanks, Phil. Where do you imagine the water that's been turned into wine is coming from? Is it coming from the jar? That's definitely how I read it. And how I used to always be told, this water comes from the jar. However, I was reading something throughout the week that maybe suggested we've been viewing this miracle wrong. That maybe the word that Jesus uses for draw is actually more likely associated with what you would do at a well. It's the word that John chapter 4 uses as Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman next to the well. Draw out some water for me. The Old Testament prophets look forward to a messianic age that was going to replace the old ways, where the Messiah would usher in a new kingdom, a new way of doing things, and they saw that age as being one that would be defined as a time when wine would flow freely. If wine is drawn from the well and not from the jars, we're talking about a significantly vaster quantity. Don't get me wrong, up to 650 litres of wine is a huge amount, but a well, a well that, that you can just draw out Whatever you want, that's abundance. That's overflowing. That's, that's superior to six jars full, a whole well. Because it says they drew the well out and then they take some to the master who then samples some. And he says, this wine's amazing. Now, sometimes I think it's easy to think perhaps this master has maybe had a few drinks already and so his sense of taste has been somewhat dulled. I know we've been to some wineries and by the third wine of the day, you're like, oh, this wine tastes nice. And so you buy some and you take it home. And you're like, this wine is, is not that nice. But this guy was like a wine connoisseur. Objectively, he knows that this wine is superior. And so he's saying, this is the good stuff. This wine is superior. Jesus is showing us symbolically through wine that comes from a well that the new system, the new age that he is bringing in is superior and so much more abundant than the old 
customs and laws about ceremonial cleansing. It's a new age. The messianic age. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's inaugurating his new age, his kingdom. In the story, Jesus meets the shortfall of an unknown groom in John chapter 2. In anticipation of the perfect way, he himself will fill the role of the messianic bridegroom. And what is the response of the disciples in verse 11? Well, in verse 11, it tells us the first sign, and his disciples believed in him. If the purpose of the gospel is so that you might see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you might have life in his name, this sign achieves its goal. It undeniably points us towards seeing that Jesus is the Messiah. As he meets and exceeds the prophetic expectations and shows he is the one who has come to fulfill, to complete the law and the Old Testament and offer us a new way, a superior way marked with abundance, marked with everything being superior. For us, friends, as we look back on this story, as we think about what does it mean for our lives, I wonder how often do we step into and live and walk in this new age which Jesus started? Do we walk in the abundance of what he has done for us? Do we realise the superiority of what we have in him? Because sometimes I think we become a bit complacent with our faith. We look back at our lives pre-Christ. Or we look back on our sin with longing. We have forgotten the truth that we were dead in our sins. Life wasn't good back then. Life was with missing Christ. And he has given us a superior way, an abundant way. We're like the Israelites looking back at slavery in Egypt fondly. They were slaves. We were slaves. Jesus has inaugurated a new way. He offers us a life of abundance, a life that is superior to anything else. He offers us a chance to be children of God and share in his new kingdom now and for all eternity. Jesus doesn't inaugurate the messianic age when he rises back to life. He starts it here. And it continues for all eternity. As we step into being Jesus' followers, we get to enjoy the full life that Jesus has for us that continues beyond this world, beyond our life for life eternal. Friends, that's what Jesus offers for us. That's the symbolism of this wedding in Cana. That Jesus is the Messiah who has brought in a new age which is so much more superior and so much more abundant than anything else we could ever know. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the book of John. Thank you for this miracle, this sign in John chapter 2. Help us to see how it points towards the truth 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Help us to believe in him that we might have life and have it to the full. God, help us to walk in this new age. Help us to know the superiority and the abundance that is available to us by your Spirit. Help us to walk in this truth now and for all eternity. Amen.